Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, the nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part one of Criminals, where Alan and I will be curating side A of a mixtape featuring songs about delinquents and scofflaws. Scofflaws. There's something about criminals that makes for great drama. Always. Right? From from Cain in the book of Genesis, uh, Shakespeare's great villains to Hollywood's mob flicks, and now the anti-heroes of prestige TV. Criminals seem to fascinate us. Why, why is that? Why do criminals fascinate us? Uh, I think it's our base nature. You know, we, we are always, we, we spend so much time conforming to society's norms that I think that there is a part of us, all of us, that, that would love to just do what feels good. You know, just be hedonistic and, and self-serving and at the expense of others if necessary. Do you think it's a, it's a way for us to cathartically get in touch with our dark side that I, we can't actually, or most of us, right, are not willing to um, act out in real life, but yeah. we can somehow, in this to, dark fantasy, live in this underworld of, of crime and deceit. Yeah, and to live vicariously. Yep. I, I, think that's, I think that's probably 100% the case. Um, and then even, even when you have the big bads, you know, like a Voldemort or a Vader or a Sauron, um, there's just something fascinating about the villain. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, so many, so many children at Halloween time, they, they, you know, they choose the costume of the villain. There's just something, something so much fun about being bad. Well, I mean, we all know that. Think about all the redemption stories, like the Grinch and Ebenezer Scrooge. We remember the evil version of these characters, not the redeemed yeah, exactly. version of these characters. Always. Yes. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, um, I think it's just, there's something fascinating about those who do evil, you know? Maybe it's psychological, maybe it's our, our need to understand why, um, but I, I don't know. Nonetheless, it made for a fantastic collection of songs. Yes, it so. did. And I, I considered any song about a lawbreaker, right? Whether they be guilty of shoplifting or first-degree murder. Um, not surprising, there were many, many, many songs to choose from. Oh, so many. <laughs> well, you want to get started? Sure. All you right. Jump in. What's your first one? All right. Well, uh, my first this this is a guilty pleasure to be sure. Um, my first song for side A is by Barry Manilow. I have chosen Copacabana at the Copa. Most of Manilow's fans have never set foot 
in the famous nightclub for which the song is named. Uh, the Copa was glamorous. It was pricey, internationally known, especially thanks to its many celebrity patrons and high-profile entertainers like Sinatra. The Copa, you know, it showed up in so many movies, and, and especially, probably the most famous, was the 1947 film uh, Copacabana, starring Groucho Marx and Carmen Miranda. And, and true to the song, I do know that the club did become a disco in the 1970s. So that that was true. So it's a um, tragic story is what you're saying. It is, yes. <laughs> uh, went from Sinatra to to the Hughes Corporation, I suppose. Um, that, that's, a, that's a drastic fall yeah. right there. Um, I doubt there's anyone over age 40, though, who does not know showgirl Lola and her bartender boyfriend, Tony, right? It's just this upbeat, joyous melody for the first half of the song, which mirrors their romance before the story takes that tragic turn. By songs, Antonia is shot and killed, and we find Lola 30 years later insane and despondent over her loss. Um, the music remains upbeat despite the tragedy, creating another one of those stark juxtapositions of, of words and music, which, which I love. Manilo, with songwriting partner Bruce Sussman, thought that, they, that the two of them thought that they were actually writing a novelty cut for his 1978 album, Even Now. But Copacabana surprised everyone. Uh, certainly Manilow, and especially Arista Records. Uh, they were faced with the first of Manilow's hits that had been forced off of an album. Um, and it put Manilow in the unique position of having three hit records in the top 40 at once. What's more, the, the song earned Manilow's first, and believe it or not, maybe it's easy to believe, <laughs> it's Barry Manilow, uh, it earned him his first and only Grammy Award. Really? Yep. His uh, first gold single for himself, uh, for a song that he composed, his first international hit record. Um, yeah, the, the song, it, it was, I think we forget how huge this song well, was. Well, and, and it was it was basically disco. I mean, not disco oh, it, in, it, in the soul sense, but it had that disco it rhythm. Yeah, it's definitely a, a disco tune. Um, the song also inspired projects in other media. And there was a made-for-TV film, there was a stage musical, so much for novelty cuts, <laughs> you know? But that, that Grammy Award was for Best Pop Vocal Performance, male. It was not for his songwriting. Um, I don't know. I, I just, this is, a, it's a guilty pleasure. Yo, this, yo. this comes on and I it's find right myself. Dancing Queen. It is, yeah. I, it, I always find myself just truly enjoying the song, but I am not going to turn it up with the windows down. You know, it's just not going to happen. Although I will say that this song is, uh, the basis for one of my absolute favorite novelty tunes. I, I'm, I'm assuming, actually, I know you've heard it because I think Zabe actually includes it at the start of the episode that we're on, Star Wars Cantina. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I love that, yep. you know. Um, I might have to put it on our mentioned songs list, but yeah, if you're if you're not familiar with it, folks, uh, there's a popular parody version uh, that was played on several radio stations in the U.S. in the mid-'90s uh, when the Star Wars trilogy, the special editions were were released and it's called the Star Wars Cantina. Yeah, the lyrics were rewritten so that they were about the movies. Her name was Leia. She was a princess. It also featured a lot of sound clips from the films. But yeah, I just, I thought Rico and his diamond, uh, you know, why not start with a, with a guilty one? Yeah, so, no, that's great. That's great. Copacabana, Co number start one. Start a little light before we get into the, like, <laughs> yeah. The violent murders and so forth. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I should say this too. I, I, I met the same criteria that you did for, for the, the, this two part episode. Um, 
but yeah, the songs are all over the place. I mean, a lot of these are novelty tunes. Some of them are just light and, and fanciful. Some of them get a little deeper. I did not go with any topic that would be uncomfortable to discuss. I mean, yeah, there were there were few that we didn't touch. Right, yeah. I, School violence would be one. There are some, well, yeah. the one song we had considered was the Julie Brown song yeah. from the 80s, which was what the, uh, home, the Homecoming Queen's Queen Got has, a Gun. Yeah, yeah that, that's maybe a little too raw right now. Yeah, but I, I love that tune, though. Um, there there are a lot of novelty tunes. I mean, there's even Kinko the Kid Loving Clown, which I'm sorry. I, I know I'm going to hell, <laughs> but song makes me laugh every time, so I, I, I feel horrible <laughs> about that. Um, but yeah, even like Janie's Got a Gun or, or Polly by Nirvana, I, I just, I stayed away from any kind of, really any act involving children. I didn't, I didn't want, not want to discuss the abuse or the sexual assault or, or anything children related. I wanted to keep this more fun. Well, so. we all appreciate that. Yeah, my, my pleasure. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's obviously some dark crime we're not going to touch here. We're just having fun. And we, do, and we don't condone the crimes we do discuss, right? Whether it be shoplifting or murder. So we're right. just having a little bit of fun today. Kind of like the crazy episode, right? Yeah. Not endorsing, but just having fun. Crazy, I understand. I don't think we really had to disclaim on this one. Okay. All right. Good. I, no one's going to think that we're going out <laughs> at night, uh, you know. Oh. Shoplifting, maybe. I don't think anyone's going to accuse us of murder. So. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> Your turn. All right. So um, I went with the, the obvious choice. The one, the fir- you know, I asked my wife, I said, if we're doing a criminal episode, what's the first song that comes to your mind? And of course, this is the one that came to her mind. And that's Smooth Criminal by Michael Jackson. Yep. From 1988 from the album Bad. <laughs> Yeah, I figured why not just get this one out of the way. I, just, I don't say it out of the way to, to be dismissive because I actually really, really love this song. It's probably in my top three favorite Michael Jackson songs, right up there with uh, Human Nature and uh, I don't know what else I opened up there. Maybe uh, maybe Thriller, Man in the Mirror. I don't know. Anyway, um, I'm not going to go on my disclaimer about Michael Jackson again. I've said it a million times, but we uh, we promote the artist and or the artist's music, not not the artist and uh, whatever may or may not have happened in their personal life. So um, I think I like this song so much because it's got this great groove, but it's it's laced with this rock edge. Um, it's probably the closest that Michael Jackson ever came to kind of a pure rock song, right? Uh, even though the rock is kind of laid over top of, the guitar is laid over top of um, the kind of the R&B groove. 
And then one day I actually paid attention to the lyrics, which, you know, I never do. And you know, frankly, the lyrics seem like they're written more by Stephen King than the king of pop, right? Uh, for instance, he, he came into the window. It was the sound of a crescendo. He came into her apartment. He left bloodstains on the carpet. She ran underneath the table. Uh, he could see that she was unable. So she ran to the bedroom. She was struck down. It was her doom. <laughs> Not typical Michael Jackson. No, fair. And he wrote he wrote the lyrics and the music to this song. This is this is a complete Michael Jackson composition. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was you no, know, I was inspired. Well, what it was inspired by, I should say. Hmm. I'm not sure. He was taking a CPR class. Okay. Okay. You know the dummy they use for the CPR class. The nickname for the dummy is Annie. And what they say, what they tell you to do in CPR is you run up to the, uh, the dummy or the, or the victim and you say, Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? Huh. That's the first thing, you know, you want to see if the person's conscious. So he liked the rhythm of that saying and he wrote the song around the CPR dummy. That is hilarious. I'm, <laughs> wow. And thankfully he decided to expand it to um, whatever violent act he's describing here as opposed to just writing the song about the dummy. But yeah, I just thought that was a little interesting. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, a song about the dummy might have been a lot of fun. Yeah. So. It does have a good rhythm though. Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? And he just obviously takes that and runs with it. Um, I almost included the 2001 cover version. Alien Ant Farm. By pop punk band Alien Ant Farm, which I really, really like. And that really kind of shows the the... The song's true rock potential. Yeah. Uh, because the kind of the R&B track is completely removed and it's just uh, kind of heavy guitars and um, just, you know, pure rock. And it just shows you, like we've talked about before, uh, so many songs can be used in different genres and covers that, you know, kind of make it their own. Show the power of a song. Right. That can be taken in many different directions. But, but I went with Michael Jackson just because it's the one... I think that we all know the best, and especially for Generation X. And, uh, you know, you can't mess with the king of pop, right? Yep, agreed. All right. I think you chose correctly. I I do do really like um, Alien Ant Farm's uh, cover version. But, yeah, I mean, like you said, there's no need to disclaim anymore involving artists versus the the art. But, um, yeah, Michael Jackson's version is the definitive. I think he chose well. All right, that takes me to my number two. Um, I went with Superfly, which is, of course, the theme song. Uh, it's the title track from the soundtrack of the same name, and it is by Curtis Mayfield. Exploitation yes. films of the yes. 1970s. Yes, yes, yeah, classic black exploitation films. You know, they're they're often a combination of creative BS and, and kind of the the real deal. You know, sometimes within the same frame. 
the films thrived in the early 70s, and their low budget sometimes led to no-nonsense location shooting that, that offered a documentary-like look at the turbulence and neglect of inner-city life in the era. Um, their plots usually diagnosed the sources of those problems correctly, but race uh, from, from racism to, to drugs to corrupt systems with no interest in letting those on the bottom get ahead. They also feature larger-than-life heroes who, using flair, firepower, you know, brawling skills, and well-timed quips, I think of Shaft especially in, in that respect, um, you know, those heroes could overcome pretty much any obstacle. And most times, the movies sent mixed signals, condemning the brutality of street life while celebrating those who knew how to bend it to their will, which always fascinated me. Um, Eddie... Um, you know, the right hand of a protagonist young blood priest in the film Superfly. Um, you know, he says it best. I know it's a rotten game, but it's the only one the man left us to play. So that's black exploitation in a nutshell. Um, Superfly was directed by Gordon Parks Jr. And it provides some of the best examples of the way that the tension between those mixed messages could make the genre feel so vital. And that's largely thanks to Curtis Mayfield's soundtrack, which which often seems to be suggesting the darker, more honest movie that Superfly could have been, but didn't allow itself to become. Uh, Mayfield delivers a, a fractious, compelling pairing of, of music and images. The film was actually really controversial when it came out, earning a condemnation from the Hollywood head of the NAACP for glorifying the drug, the drug trade. Uh, but its depiction is more nuanced than the finger-pointing might suggest. Much of the credit belongs to Mayfield, whose soundtrack has had natural life of its own for, what, 50 years? This came out in 72. Yeah, yeah, 50, 50, 50 years. 50 years, uh, this song is still recognized for just its achievements. Um, Thanks for reminding me of my upcoming birthday. You are very welcome. <laughs> you turn 50 before I do, sir. <laughs> Not by much, but you do. Um, yeah, the, the song was actually originally an instrumental passage. Um, but it ended up having a huge role in the film. And it, it plays at the end of the movie after the drug-dealing lead character, after Priest, takes a stand against the white deputy commissioner telling him, you don't own me, pig. And then the song plays. Um, but Curtis Mayfield, he actually said in interviews that it was a glorious moment for black people. He said, Priest had a mind. He wanted to get out. For once, in spite of what he was doing, he got away. So there came Superfly, the song, he was trying to get over. We couldn't be so proud of him dealing coke or using coke, but at least the man had a mind and he wasn't just some ugly dead something in the streets after it was all over. He got out. Um, Mike Nichols, you know, as, as an aside, Mike Nichols, his, his collaboration with Simon and Garfunkel on The Graduate, it started a trend of musicians working directly with directors that was still going strong in 72. And black exploitation films produced some of the best pairings. Isaac Hayes did Shaft. Marvin Gaye did Trouble Man. Um, James Brown was uh, brought on for Hell Up in Harlem, but eventually they let him go. Still, he had a huge hit single from that soundtrack that was not used. But the tradition, it's kind of fallen away. Because I was thinking about this, and other than Harry Connick Jr. on When Harry Met Sally in 89, can you think of any other film that is very specifically, largely just a... a you know, an a album. Ve a vehicle for the a artist where the yeah. artist is pretty much the sole provider of the music. Yeah. 
Um, I'm sure there are some examples out there, but I, mean, I can't I'm think of any sure off the top of my head. Sure, it hasn't gone away entirely, but yeah, since Conic, I, I can't think of any, but pl- exploitation films did it all the time. Right. Um, so, you know, and, and we're talking some big names uh, within the, the R&B uh, charts. And as a final aside, last thing I'll say about this song, um, this is the song that popularized the word fly. Fly was not a word until this song. Um, and, you know, it, it means unusual and exceptional, particularly when it comes to fashion. Um, I was curious about the, the Webster's definition, which... Versus um, the Urban Dictionary versus definition. Versus the Urban yeah, Dictionary, yeah. yeah. Um, and Superfly is, of course, even better. You know, it's very high praise. So, um, there you go. We have Superfly. Yeah, I have Bruce a Mayfield. confession to make. When I was a kid, I had uh, Joel Whitburn's um, American Top 40 reference book that, okay. I, that I bought at, at Walden Books. And it had um, all of the, the charts up to, I want to say, 1984. And you could look. It was alphabetical by artist. And it listed all of their top 40 hits and what position it peaked and so forth. And I just loved to read that. And, of course, I'd come across songs and bands I'd never heard of before. We didn't have the Internet. We didn't have Spotify. Um, and so unless I was willing to spend allowance money on a record, right, I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to listen to a lot of these. Like, sometimes I'd go... Uh, to the skating rink, you know, and I'd request these songs that were like 25 years old. And of course, they'd never play them, but I wanted to hear it. Well, there was one song, and I think it was a novelty song. You know, I've never gone back to listen to it. I should. But it was called Superfly Meet Shaft. Superfly Meet Shaft. And, and I had no idea of exploitation films. I had no idea it was from a movie. I thought, this is what I thought. I thought Superfly was, uh, was like a, a, a superhero, like a fly guy, like half fly, half human. Uh-huh. And he like got stuck in an air vent in the shaft. And it was a novelty song that about this is fantastic. fly trying to get out of an air vent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not proud of that one. I, well, no, I would pay to hear that song, honestly. <laughs> we'll um, have to put it on the mentions list if it's on Spotify. Yeah. You know, Spotify, there's so many songs that are just not there. Yeah. yeah. It, I, I always think they have everything, and they, they pretty much do. But when what I find increasingly the songs that we talk about, uh, that we put on the mentioned songs list, so many of them are not, a lot of them are obscure. Right, but, right. But I would love to hear Superfly versus Shaft. Yeah, well, I'll uh, look that that'd up. That'd be interesting. All right, Alan, I want you to think back now, okay? Think back. You're in elementary school. It's the early 80s. It's Friday afternoon. Even though the gym teacher brought out the parachute, which we all loved, right? All you can think about is making it to 8 o'clock that night for the next episode of The Dukes of Hazard. Oh, yes. I mean, did our not, did our kid world not like revolve around that TV show? It did. Oh, yeah. On Friday nights, every week. This and, was, and, well, in, yeah. until Coy and Vance. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, once Bo and Luke left, I don't know. Yeah, right. But, it, it jumped the shark, as yeah. they say now. Oh, very much. But It was one of the first 45 records I ever owned. Uh, when I'm referring to the theme from the Dukes of Hazard, by the way, by uh, Waylon Jennings from 1979. Just a good old boy, never meaning no harm. Beats all you never saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they was born. Straightening the curve. Flattening the hills Someday the mountain might get them But the law never will 
making their way the only way they know how. That's just a little bit more than the whole of life. I got the 45. I played it all the time. I, I didn't even know it was a country song back then. You know, I was like seven years old. Um, I just know that it belonged to my favorite TV show, and it conjured up images of Bo and Luke and their General Lee uh, going airborne in an attempt to escape Sheriff Roscoe P. Cotrain and his hound, Flash. Now, looking back, of course, there's all sorts of problematic aspects to the show, starting with the good guy's love of their state's Confederate past. Um, but, you know, eight-year-old me had no idea right that the that the horn you know was playing dixie or what that represented and um i just loved the car crash scenes i loved uh the duke boys outsmarting boss hog and his incompetent law enforcement here's my question now yeah um were the dukes really criminals i mean they were motivated by good right like the song says they were like uh, two modern day robin hoods and by the way well um, they were they were just a Good old, good, good old, old boys. Good old boys. Yeah. But the, the, the Robin Hood line was appeared in the TV version of the song. It right. does not appear on the single version of the song. Correct. The third verse says uh, something about, Waylon Jennings kind of breaks the fourth wall, and he says, you know, they only show my, he's talking to his mother, and he says, basically, look, I'm a TV star, but they never show my face, they only show my hands. Right. Because at the very beginning, you see Waylon Jennings playing guitar to the theme song. But uh, they changed it to modern day Robin Hood on on the, on the television. But so, I mean, yeah, they they're breaking traffic laws. I know Uncle Jesse's making moonshine, uh, but really, it's 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 the cops that are incompetent and corrupt, right? And they're kind of fighting that corruption. So, I guess I was just really confused as a child because we're raised to expect you know to respect law enforcement, and you know when you're raised with that very black and white version of what's good and bad. And then to see it kind of turned upside down where the good guys are kind of, you know, running away from the police and perhaps doing, you know, legally questionable things. It was kind of confusing for me. Yeah. I, well, and I never, I mean, obviously you had the traffic fight. I, every episode, you know, was a very poor example of, of what to do behind the wheel. Um, but yeah, Moonshiners, I don't know what... I, I guess in my mind, and I don't know the laws. I certainly don't know the laws for Hazard County. And is it is it? <laughs> I Kentucky? think Georgia. I thought it was Georgia. I thought it was Kentucky. Um, well, wherever it is, um, it's down south. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> given. Um, I don't know. Is making your own moonshine illegal? Well, I, yeah, it was for a long time in many states. Yeah, but if drinking it yourself. Yeah, no, it was still huh. legal. Okay, I, I, I believe so. I know they've changed the laws recently. Now that people make craft beer and craft well, that, wine, that's and, what I'm saying. And you, you can make your own moonshine, and yeah. they sell like moonshine in the stores now that are lower alcohol content right. yeah. than what people would make in their basements. Yeah. But yeah, for a long time there, it was it was illegal, and yeah. it probably still is in many states. Yeah, because you got, well, you can go out and buy your own smoky anytime. Yeah, the moonshine's available. But okay, yeah, I, yeah, I will concede my ignorance on the topic. But I, I was just thinking. You can buy so many beer kits and you can make your own wine and you can, you know. I right, guess. yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not entirely sure why they were always running from the law, why the law was It was basically Tom around. and Jerry with cars. That's I all mean, that, That's basically what it was. Yeah, with the, with the romance between Enos and yes. Daisy. Yeah. yeah, and then that someone named Cooter, I think, was near the mechanic or something. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, or was he the other? Who was the other sheriff? The deputy sheriff? Roscoe. No, Roscoe was the sheriff. Who was the deputy? Was that the, oh, Cletus? Cletus. 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 Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Still remember these things. Of course, I was far too young to really appreciate parts of the uh, show that had I continued to watch um, or had I been watching when I was a little bit older, and that was, of course, Daisy Duke. And now the uh, the cutoffs are named for her yeah, appropriately. Yeah. I remember she appeared at like car shows and, and, and such. But, Still does. Uh, Still but does. when I was seven or eight, I was more interested in the car than I was the girl. I was too. Yeah, <laughs> which shows uh, you know, how long ago this this was, I suppose. Um, yeah, I... I don't know. What what is your take on everyone's accusation about the you know the overt racism in the show? I don't, you know what? I'd have to go back and watch. I haven't watched an episode of Dukes of Hazard, you know, in 30 years. So yeah, I, 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 don't I, know I haven't either. How overt it is. At the time, of course, I didn't know anything about history. I didn't know what the General Lee was. I didn't know what Dixie was, right? right. Looking back on it from this perspective, those aspects seem really, really problematic. Uh, I don't believe there were a lot of characters, not main characters of no, color. No, it was no, uh, it was it was very whitewashed. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think most people's uh, the, the conundrum is the you know the Confederate flag right, on right, top right, of the right, car. Right. I don't know. I I kind of give it a free pass. I, I do, um, and I, maybe I shouldn't. But the show embodies so much of my childhood, and at that young age, it was so innocent that you know I. I mean, but there's a lot of problematic stuff from our youth, right? Oh. I mean, you know, any show, no I'm, show can escape that. Yeah, I'm fairly confident that everything from our youth was. But there are a lot of shows you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today, even though that was obviously, you know, an, an anti-racist uh, oh, film. Absolutely, you, you couldn't make that today, no. <laughs> right? Well, and I think about Airplane. Yeah, you know, yeah. When June Cleaver comes up and says, "Excuse me, I speak jive," <laughs> which I'm sorry, is still one of the funniest damn scenes in cinema history. But right. yeah, it's. Man, times do change, don't yep. they? You are correct, by the way. Georgia? Yep. Yeah. Hazard County and the show is from Georgia. Um, I don't know why I was thinking Kentucky. I think there might be an actual Hazard County in oh, Kentucky, but I'm, I'm not sure. I remember the first time I went to Kentucky, probably around this time, and I just kept looking for blue grass. Yeah, yeah, I did the same. <laughs> yeah. I, oh, man. <laughs> good good. No, I'm not alone on that one. Well, hopefully uh, hopefully the, the song brought back some memories for listeners, because I know that was a huge Gen X. It was. And the end joke, song. you know, that end joke about, you know, his mama only sees his hands. It's one of the great tongue-in-cheek, one of the great tongue-in-cheek lyrics, I think, of right, right. country music. All right. Well, my number three, we are still talking country and Western, which we don't do a whole lot. Um, I went with Goodbye Earl by the Chicks. Fair thing. 
I love this song. I do too. Formerly the Dixie Chicks. Yes. Uh, that just feeds into what we were just talking yep. about. Yep. Um, in fact, you know what? I just love the Chicks. Yeah. I would see them in concert. At the drop I would of too. Hat. I would too. I, I really would. Natalie Maines, especially. I think her voice is just. I, I I love I love the Chicks. They're just a lot of fun. You know, even some of the more you know serious songs are just fun. Like uh, Cowboy Take Me Away, which is kind of a play on the the Calgon commercial. Is that what it was? The soap or the yeah Calgon Take Me Away commercials from the '80s and just. Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not a fan of the chicks to where I have all of their. I think I had the CD that um, uh, that Earl is on. That was that was of course huge. Had lots of great, that great was fly fly great songs on that. And uh, I think I had a couple of the ones that came after that. But uh, yeah, no, they're solid. They're solid. Yeah. Well, this one was a crossover hit. It was a top twenty hit. Hit number eighteen on the Hot 100. Um, the story, I, I, like Copacabana, I don't know that there's anyone that does not know the story of Goodbye Earl, but, you know, you're talking about a woman exacting the ultimate revenge on a violent husband, right? The song was written by Dennis Lind, who is best known for writing the 1972 Elvis Presley hit Burning Love. Interesting. Actually. Uh, Lind had written several songs that included a character by the name of Earl, most notably The Queen of My Double Wide Trailer by Sammy Kershaw. I do not know the song. Um, but uh, this track, apparently, Goodbye Earl, it was written very deliberately as an effort to kill off the Earl character. Oh. Um, Dennis Lind had just tired of writing about Earl, so he decided to, to kill him off. Um, I mean, was he a good guy in the other songs? Because he's pretty much a piece of trash in this song. I, I mean, I don't beating know. up his wife, it's kind of hard to redeem that. Exactly. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Um, I don't know. I, I should have listened to the Sammy Kershaw tune I, I will later just out of cur- morbid curiosity and we'll put it on the mentioned songs list but yeah I, I don't know if the similar character if it's a similar character or if it is the same character but nonetheless uh, it was time to kill off the name at the very least gotcha yeah um, the murder ballad was originally discovered by the country music band Sons of the Desert and they actually began to perform it in concert planning to record it on their second album for Epic Records but at the same time the Chicks uh, who were signed to another Sony Division Monument, uh, another Sony Division Monument Records was uh, the name of it. They claimed Girl by, Goodbye Earl as their own. And their version was recorded uh, for Fly, released as a single the following year. It peaked at number 19, as I already said. Um, this song, though, it, it stirred a lot of controversy. Did it really? It did. I mean, even um, though it was really over the top. It, yeah. I mean, clearly it's over the top. Yeah, it's it's they're clearly having fun, but yeah, it, it's take on spousal abuse, um, and and you know the revenge that that comes from it. It was banned by several radio programmers, hmm. a lot of them across the nation. What do you think is the one thing all those radio programmers had in common? Any idea? Uh, they all had in common. They had the highest rates of spousal abuse in those states. I don't know what. You're overthinking it. They were all male. <laughs> oh. Every it was the male radio programmers that nixed the song. Uh, stations with female uh, females, you know, at program directors, program directors, yeah. Yeah, had no problem that. with the song at all. Well, I mean, there was a feminist bent to it too, because I, I believe the narrator and her friend are the ones that kind of pull this off together. Right. And then they end up, what, burying them and having a garden, and then they sell that, uh, the, the fruits of their garden at the local farmer's market. Yep. And so Earl continues, and, and, and <laughs> they got the revenge, and he also continues to provide for them right. even after he's dead. Yeah. But he just can't hurt them anymore. Yeah, the two of them, it's kind of like a Thelma and Louise moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. In, yeah, in yeah. the song. Um, the music video, 
uh, for the song. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen it. it was Dennis Drake. France, I believe, was in yes, it. Dennis. Lauren Holly. Uh, I, I think Lauren know. Holly played the. the well, film. yeah, Lauren Holly. Uh, she played Marianne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but Jane Krakowski. Oh yeah, right. Was in it as well. Right. Uh, the video it actually won uh, both the Academy of Country Music. Uh, and the Country Music Association Video of the Year Awards in yeah. 2000. I remember it was unusual because most music videos, occasionally you had a cameo by a celebrity, but most music videos didn't cast like a short film. Right. And this really was like a short film with a Hollywood cast. Yep. Yeah, and the record label, here's this is my last final, my final uh, note on the song, but the record label wasn't bothered at all by the song's lighthearted take on murder. They were concerned about the track Sin Wagon. Oh, yeah. Which has, the, which has the girls engaging in mattress dancing. Uh, <laughs> lead singer Natalie Maines, she actually told Entertainment Weekly that, you know, quote, they're, they're scared to death about that song and they won't talk about it in interviews. And our manager jokes, you can say mattress dancing, or rather you can't say mattress dancing, but they love the song about premeditated first-degree murder. Yeah. Well, you know. it's, you know, that's America. Uh, yeah, that says it all, right? It's the opposite. In England, right, you get a, a worse rating for violence than you do for sexual content. In America, it's the exact opposite. Exact you opposite. get a PG-13 with the most violent movie. Yep. But uh, it's R with anything uh, sexual. That, oh, that, yeah, that irks me. Yeah, we can shed as much blood as we like, but you can't show, you know, a woman's breasts. I, it, I don't know. I don't get it. Hey, this is a family show. Watch it. <laughs> I'm trying to watch it. They have too high a rating for me. All right. It is your turn. All right. Well, speaking of videos that were cinematic, um, that fits perfectly into my next song, which is Smuggler's Blues. Oh, great song. By Glenn Fry. Came out in 1984. Um, it was the third single off the All Nighter. I didn't even remember the first two singles. I forget what they were now. But uh, this was, was the big hit. I'd listened to this song in like 30 years. I was really, really surprised at how well the track held up. Uh, it's, it's a kind of a pop rocker, and I think it features one of Fry's best vocals. Um, he really, you know, and we'll talk about his acting because, you know, he dabbled in acting, but I think he really, just the way, you know, his performance, I guess, is what you have to listen to it. Um, he does not phone it in. He really gets into this one oh, he and does. Just, just does a nice job. Um, now, the song in itself, right, tells the story of a, of a smuggler in the drug trade. Then the video was almost like a short film where Glenn Fry himself plays the lead role, showing off some of his acting chops. Um, but very, very cinematic video. And, of course, we talked about all these shows about criminals that are popular. In the early 80s, right, you had Dukes of Hazard, and then you had Miami Vice. 
and Miami Vice was huge. And so after seeing this video, the writers of Miami Vice wrote an episode. It was called Smuggler's Blues, and they invited Glenn Fry to be on the show where he played an airline pilot, and they used the song as well in the show. Yeah. So it's just kind of uh, interesting. I, I think at the time, I thought it was the opposite. I thought they asked Fry to write you know, the song for the show, but really it was the other way around. Yeah, I am. Um, you know, I don't I don't know that I knew that this song was on a Fry album. Honestly. Yes. Yep. yep. Um, I've, I've never known much about Fry's solo career. I mean, I know the songs from Miami Vice. I know. Don't you know, forget Thelma and Louise. I was just going to say. very Eagle-esque. Right. Uh, I'm a part of you. You're a part of me. I, um, I, you belong to the city. Also Miami Which Vice. also was yeah. on Miami Vice. Yeah. I mean, he, I know that he did work on soundtracks, but, but. I'd know nothing about any of his discography during the 80s. You Belong to the City might have been written for my, or I don't know. I'll have to look, because I was thinking Smuggler's Blues was, and it wasn't, so right. I'll have to look. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that song in 30 years either, so. Huh. Um, the song, the video, the TV series, all proof that Americans have this hefty appetite for stories about smuggling and a long tradition of pirate, western, and gangster films. And then, of course, Tarantino would show up a decade later to take the genre to a whole new level. Oh, yes. Yep. Now, great, great song. All right. I um, My next one, uh, this one to me, it was one of the first songs that I thought of. Uh, I went with Maxwell's Silver Hammer by the Beatles. Joan was quizzical, studied metaphysical science in the home. Late nights all alone with a test tube. Majoring in medicine calls her on the phone. Can I take you out to the pictures, John? But as she's getting ready to go, a knock comes on the door. Bang, bang, that's well silver. From Abbey Road, 1969, uh, never charted, was not released. McCartney wrote the song about medical student Maxwell Edison, uh, the serial killer. Uh, the lyric in the song is whimsical. It's just, it's it's a dark comedy, essentially, called from McCartney's imagination. Growing up, McCartney's family loved to make up outrageous stories and tell tall tales, and this seeped into McCartney's songwriting, as he often made up characters for his songs. John Lennon, on the other hand, would usually base his songs on real people and events. So the two of them were uh, kind of polar opposites in that respect. It is interesting when you think that McCartney had a, a lot more stable home life. Right. I believe he had both parents. They were very musically inclined. He grew up listening to classic show tunes and jazz and all sorts of different types of music, and he was very supportive. Whereas Lennon, um, of course, uh, was basically orphaned and raised by his aunt and it can just, yeah, I, I think that explains the difference between the two of them more than anything. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, if you listen to McCartney's Let It Be and compare that to Julia, although Julia's, it's a very beautiful song. Oh, it is. It is. Very beautiful For his song. mom, yeah. Um, yeah, McCartney said of this song that it, it epitomized the downfalls in, downfalls in life. He said just when everything is going smoothly, bang, bang, down comes Maxwell's silver hammer and it ruins everything. So his... 
his justification or his his uh, you know explanation, if you will, was simply Murphy's law. Um, if something can go wrong, it it will, and when it goes wrong, it apparently strikes you over the head with a silver hammer. Um, McCartney played a, a Moog synthesizer on this one, uh, but there is a much more unusual instrument on the song as well. The that, anvil. They use the anvil, <laughs> yes. That's, if you watch the Let It Be documentary, you can see the recording of the song, or at least one of the, the demo versions. Yeah. Um, you know, I still have not started that. I just, it's, it's on my radar. It's like on my I mean, it's long, list. but watch it in pieces. Watch it in half-hour increments, at least. Yeah, I, I just, I have not had time this summer to really sit down and watch anything, and it's killing me because there are so many things I want to watch. That, that, that documentary, the Peter Jackson documentary, Chief Among Them. Um, but yeah, they, they use the anvil. And, you know, it, it's a, I don't know, it, it's, to me, I think anvil, I think Looney Tunes. You know, right. just the anvil dropping over your head. Um, Ringo is the one who banged on the anvil. Makes sense. He was the percussionist, uh, which was rented from a company that supplied stage props, apparently. Lennon didn't play on the song. He was not at the sessions for this uh, because he was recovering from his car accident. Uh, Lennon has abased this track. I mean, he loaded it. He, he, just constantly. Yeah, he was not a fan. No. In fact, none of the band were. They all hated this song. Um, and the sessions, I mean, it, they went on for three days as McCartney tried to get this just right. And it really strained his already tense relationship with, with the Beatles. Um, Ringo has actually said that this was the worst session ever. Just the worst session they ever had was from Maxwell Silver Hammer. Ringo said it was the worst track we ever had to record. And Ringo said, quote, it went on for effing, I'm not going to say it, effing <laughs> weeks. He said, I thought it was mad. So, but I, I can't help it. I, I love this song. I have come close to using this song on three or four different episodes. And now it just felt right. So, well, it's fun. It's a fun song. And it, it, it is, again, like McCartney, who really brought a lot of um, show tune. Um, style to like your mother should know of course is a good example oh, of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, this, this is very show tuny which makes sense because he grew up you know loving those songs absolutely yeah good one good one anytime we get the Beatles on right it's a, oh. good, it's a good show without question well let's just stay in England shall we and um, talk about the Smiths on my night I, any, any chance I can get a Smith song in right it's a good episode for me at least and uh, I'm choosing shoplifters of the world unite Oh, 
The song was actually um, kind of controversial on, upon its release. Um, you know, England has a history of, of, of banning songs from the BBC that are politically charged. And Morrissey's run into that uh, several times, not only with the Smiths, but, but solo. And this was no uh, exception. Um, a lot of people saw it as a, a protest to capitalism and a shout out to Marxism. Morrissey defended the song, saying it was never about shoplifting physical goods, but spiritual or cultural shoplifting and using these things to your advantage. And I have no idea what the hell that means. <laughs> I'm thinking really hard about it. I'm like, okay, cultural shoplifting, spiritual, is that like cultural appropriation? Is it like taking, is it the way that the elite and the state uses its power and then you use the same tactics to fight against it? I suppose that's what he's saying. Anyway, um, it's just classic because Morrissey bemoans his, quote, only weakness is a list of crimes. It's such a Morrissey line. Um, you know, he, he tried living in the real world, but he was bored before he even began. You know, just typical Moz fare there. Um, not only does that song, the song uses that special Smith sound, but Johnny Marr, man, he cuts in with his guitar. The solo on the, on the bridge of the song is just one of my favorite Johnny Marr moments on any Smith's record. And Morrissey has actually cited the song as being his personal favorite. Oh, really? Yep. I didn't know that. Yep. All right, that's Shoplifters of the World Unite. <laughs> All right. Well, we are staying in England for, All right. for a third track in a row. This one, um, I don't know how detailed I want to get because this one could run long and I don't want to overextend. But it is a six-minute song that defied all odds and went on to be the highest charting single at that time by Queen. And I'm talking, of course, about Bohemian Rhapsody. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide? No escape from reality. Open your eyes. Look up to the skies and see. I'm just a Freddie Mercury, he, he wrote the lyrics, and there's been so much speculation as to what this song means. 
And in interviews, guitarist Brian May has said that Freddie was a very complex person. He was flippant and funny on the surface, but he concealed insecurities and problems in squaring up his life with his childhood. Uh, according to Brian May, Freddie never explained the lyrics. Uh, but Brian May said uh, that he's fairly sure that Freddie put a lot of himself into the song. Many believe, to, many believe the song is about Freddie's sexuality. It was about this time when the song was recorded that he was starting to come to terms with his bisexuality and his relationship with Mary Austin was falling apart. Uh, among those who believe this to be true is Leslie Ann Jones. She was the author of the biography, Mercury. Jones says that when she posed the question to Freddie uh, in 1986, the singer did not give a straight answer and that he was always very vague about the song's meaning, admitting only that it was quote-unquote about relationships. Um, now, Mercury's family's religion, their their Zoro... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw this up. Mercury's family religion, Zoroastrianism, doesn't accept homosexuality, and he, he made efforts to conceal his sexual orientations, uh, possibly just you know so as not to offend the family. But after Mercury's death, Jones says she spent time with his lover, Jim Hutton, who told her that the song was, in fact, Mercury's confession that he was gay. Uh, Mercury's good friend Tim Rice agreed, and he offered some lyrical analysis to support the theory. Mama, I just killed a man, according to Rice. Uh, he's killed the old Freddy. He was trying to be the former image. But a gun against his head, put my trigger, now he's dead. Uh, old Freddy has, has gone, and the straight person he pretended to be uh, is no more. He's destroyed the man he was trying to be, and now uh, this is him trying to live with uh, his bisexuality. I see a little silhouette of a man... That's him still being haunted by what he's he's done and what he is. What Scala Mush mean? <laughs> well, that actually, I, I found that too. They, um, give me one sec, because I, I didn't make note of it, but I did. Because I, I always thought those were just kind of, well, when I was a kid, I thought they meant something. And then I got as I got older, I figured it was just nonsensical lyrics that they just added almost for a rhythmic, uh, a rhythmic addition. No, they're, they're actually, um, they're words that are found in the Quran. Oh, okay. I'm trying to find it here again. Um, okay, so uh, Scaramouche means literally a stock character that appears as a boastful coward. Hmm. Uh, Bismillah is is one of uh, those words as well. It means in the name of Allah. And of course, Beelzebub, right. one of the many names given to the devil. Um, yeah, they're... they're no, very. There's a lot of this song that, and you know, I never even gave it much thought. I love the song, but I've never really, and I overanalyze every damn thing. But I've never really thought about. Well, I figured this song. Yeah, know? I figured it was an allegory for something. And, uh, yeah, and I, I haven't given it much thought either. But it makes sense. It would be an allegory of his struggle to yeah. come out. And you know, it's even believed that uh, Galileo is thrown into the song as a tribute to friend Brian May being the astrophysicist hmm, that, yeah. that he is. I, I, I don't Figaro? know. Figaro? No, I, I, part of it has to be they were just playing around with the operatic oh, I'm, I'm portion sure. of it and they yeah. were just like throwing stuff out. Um, of course, you saw the biopic um, 
uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. And uh, they had a lot of fun with the scene of recording this song. They showed a lot of the different techniques they used to right. try to get those sounds. Because again, without digital recording, we talked about this with Pink Floyd, it was a lot harder because you had to cut pieces of tape together and you had to experiment. And of course, they would put their amps in, in different situations. I think at one point, they had things swinging from the, from the ceiling to, to get that effect. And so you really had to be creative. And so when I listen to a song like this, I'm far more impressed with what they were able to do as opposed to what's a lot easier to do now on a computer. Oh, yeah. Well, and you know what? A Night at the Opera, the album that this comes from, it was the most expensive album at that time that had ever been made. Yeah, and I don't think the record company was really happy with no, it. No, they were not happy at all. Um, the band used six different studios to record it. Um, including Rockfield, which is a residential studio in the Welsh countryside, where they also recorded most of the song Killer Queen. Um, Queen did not use any synthesizers on this album either, which is something they were actually very proud of. Whatever the song actually means, though, I mean, we'll never know. Mercury himself remained tight-lipped, and the band agreed not to reveal anything about the meaning. Um, Mercury himself stated, it's one of those songs which has such a fantasy feel about it I think people should just listen to it, think about it, and then make up their own minds as to what it says to them. And the band, they've always been keen to let listeners interpret their music in a personal way to them, rather than impose their own meaning on songs. So we will likely never know. But, you know, this song, it charted very high. But then, you know, the problem was that the very next album, which was Hot Space, had a very strong disco leaning. And at that time... Is Another One Bites the Dust appear on that album? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And essentially, um, you know, in America, it did not... It just didn't do well. Um, because, you know, in the U.S., disco was an anathema. You know, it was at that point that uh, Americans were turning... That was about 1980, away. I believe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, very quickly they, they charted, they were they were on the road to success and in the U.S. their their fame just dropped. Well, part of it too was that MTV censored their video for I Want to Be Free. Um, there was a one, I Want to Break Free? What's the name of it? I Want to Break Free. I Want to Break Free. Yeah. Where they all dress up in drag and were like doing domestic chores around the house. MTV banned that and I think they were kind of ticked and so I don't know that they really marketed themselves in the 80s much because they had a lot of singles over in the UK but until Live Aid I think a lot of people had forgotten about Queen and then of course when Wayne's World came That's, by 10 years later yes. <laughs> then everybody remembered and, and, and that was it yeah um, you know they got a whole new audience out of it in 92 um, you know that scene that's just comedic gold no one will ever forget the scene where they're singing this song in the car um, but um, ironically I found this interesting this is the UK not the US but the song that knocked this off the number one chart position in the UK was I very ironically it was Mamma Mia by ABBA oh interesting which given Mamma Mia in Bohemian you know it's so prevalent yeah, as, yeah, a, yeah. as a lyric yeah and like uh, Star Wars Cantina earlier gotta give a shout out to one of the great novelties in 2009, the Muppets released a video featuring uh, the entire cast of, of the Muppets performing this song. It was the first web video for the Muppets, and it, it was so extremely popular, it, viewed, it, it, it garnered 7 million views in the first week alone. And, you know, they changed the song a bit, omitting the lyrics that began, Mama Just Killed a Man, um, with uh, Animal screaming, Mama, 
oh. over and over again. <laughs> Mama by my animal. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm cutting out all kinds of stuff. Here I, I would I, guess that the, <laughs> the that the, it probably charted higher in the 90s than it did originally. It actually it hit number two. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it hit yeah. number two. Uh, the song that kept it out was Jump by Criss Cross. Interesting. Jump by Criss Cross was the number one. It, it would not let uh, Queen reach the top spot. I remember I had the cassette of their greatest hits and I used to listen to my Walkman riding my bike, which probably isn't the safest thing. And I remember, you know, other than the, I knew Another One Bites the Dust, of course, and We Will Rock You and those songs, but I had not heard Bohemian Rhapsody. And I just remember thinking, what the heck is this? But I loved it, and, and it, but it was kind of silly. It wasn't one, you know, right. that I told my friends, hey, listen to this. Uh, and so I was just really happy when it was featured in, in Wayne's World because I'm like, yes, that's yeah. a great song. When I, I came to Queen very late, too. I mean, and but their harmonies, they, they were just so... Uh, there was a musicality there that you don't find in other bands, you know, and in all of their work, from Killer Queen through Fat Bottom Girls through um, Bicycle Race on to, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody. And they required everyone to write, too, which was interesting. Yeah, all four of them, all four had, of them had to write. All four of them actually had a a top 10 hit. Which is why we get I'm in love with my car. <laughs> yes. featured in the movie as well. Very true. Uh, but no, I, I've always thought that Queen, in my mind anyway, the sound of Queen, okay, what the, the music that they put out, I always thought of them as being the, ex, the next step uh, in the evolution of the Beatles. In fact, I often thought that had the Beatles not broken up, in the 70s, their music would have sounded very much like Queen. You're not wrong, and I agree with you. I think there's one band, though, that may be even closer to that mark. Who's that? ELO. I can, ELO, I can see to that. me, sounds yeah. like if the, if the Beatles had continued in the 70s. I can see that. Well, there's so much similarity between Queen oh, yeah. and ELO yeah. and yeah. sound, so love them both. All right, I'm going to cut out all the rest because I took so many notes on this song. There's so much I didn't know, but I don't want to bore our audience. You're up. Well, they can pick up that biography, right, if they want to learn that. More. That's true. All Very right. true. Okay, my next one is by Weird Al Yankovic. We had to bring him back. We did a whole artist spotlight last season. Was it last season? Uh, yeah. Last season on Weird Al Yankovic. Um, this is Don't Download This Song from 2006 from Straight Outta Linwood. Great song. talked on the Weird Al episode about how, of course, he wrote these legendary parodies, 
Um, he wrote lots of great original songs, but he also had these kind of stylistic tributes. You know, one for the, the Doors that's genius. Uh, he, he kind of takes on uh, Talking Heads, takes on Devo with um, Dare to be Stupid. And he does it not to make fun of these bands, but almost as a tribute, because anytime he does one of these, he's, he's usually paying tribute to that band. This, on the other hand, I think he really is poking fun. Yeah. Because he is clearly, and you can tell anybody, any Gen Xer can tell in the first three measures that he's poking fun at We Are the World by USA for Africa, as well as Hands Across America, and a lot of those songs where the artists would get together in the 80s, they would donate their time, they'd write a music, they'd, they'd write the music, record it, and then all of the money and the proceeds would go to, you know, famine in Africa, or just like Live Aid. I mean, that was kind right. of the thing in the early 80s. And so Weird Al, the genius that he is, um, looked around uh, in a more modern sense back back then and said, you know what, um, all this downloading and all this discussion, especially with Lars Aldrich and um, Metallica. Well, I was gonna say, well, that's where I thought you were going at first. He, he name drops. And, yeah, he, he def, this is definitely, uh, yeah, he's having fun at Metallica's Because they, they and several other artists aggressively went after people. It didn't matter if you were, as he mentions in the song, a grandmother or a, a little girl, uh, prosecuting people that were downloading these songs and not buying the CDs. And so, yeah, he's kind of poking fun at the idea of artists coming together, but for this really superficial cause, which is, of course, protecting their own bottom line. Yeah. Now, in all honesty, I, I do understand that in the music business, the money isn't just going to the artist. They're getting the lion's share, right, in the record company. But you also have to consider all the other people that are employed, you know, at the recording studio and the sound engineers and the people that work at the show. So it isn't necessarily a victimless crime. But I, I love the fact that he is having fun with this and he's doing it with uh, USA for Africa. Um, he, even, he even shouts out Tommy Shaw. I know. And <laughs> he goes, remember Tommy? Uh, and, and then beyond the fact that it's, it's just hilarious, um, the song is extremely catchy. The chords epically build under the soaring melody that dares you not to sing along while raising your hands and swaying back and forth. Lyrics, of course, in Weird Al style are way over the top. Should be no surprise to longtime listeners. For example, quote, because you start out stealing songs and then you're robbing liquor stores and selling crack and running over school kids with your car. <laughs> Best line in the song, yeah. And then the fade out, he sings, you'll burn in hell before too long and you'll deserve it. <laughs> and the song also mentions the old peer-to-peer -peer sharing sites from back in the 90s. So if you remember Morpheus, there was LimeWire, Kazaa, I think I used them all. How quickly we forget. I totally right. forgot about those. And MTV, there's a video for this. It's an animated video. And MTV would not play the video because they mentioned those sites, which of course were in competition for the big conglomerate. Right. And so they said you have to censor them. So he put these really kind of aggressive censors uh, over those words to clearly point out the fact that, that he did not agree with this censorship, but he had to play the game to get it on, on MTV. Um, one final touch of, of just perfect brilliance. He has this song, this epic song about not downloading music because it's the most criminal thing in the world. And it gives the song away for free. I know. It's on, it's on his, his MySpace page at the time. Um, he puts it up on YouTube for free. Uh, the, the version you can download doesn't have any copy protection. A total Weird Al move. Yep. Love it. He, I'll tell you what, he is, he's the real deal. And we, we talked enough about him during the spotlight, but I, I don't know that there will ever be another artist like him. You know, even in, you know, music aside, just in the comedy world. Right. I mean, he's just, there's nothing this man can't do. It's 
unbelievable, frankly. I was listening to another podcast uh, about the political beats. Uh, I'll give them, I'll give them a plug. Really, really good. They'll take a particular artist and they go through the record catalog and they discuss each album all the way through their career. And they um, featured Weird Al uh, a few episodes ago. Oh yeah. And it's funny because one of the hosts. Um, you know, he grew up listening to Weird Al, but he was a little bit intimidated because he couldn't decide if Weird Al was just, you know, is it just kind of baseless comedy or is it really art? And he went into the show feeling it was just kind of like silly comedy. Not not to take anything away from the genius of Weird Al, but he just felt like maybe it wasn't as important. But by the end of the episode, he came around and realized that it, it definitely is an art form. Oh, yeah. It was Weird Al's art form. And it was his way to express how he felt about the culture um, in, in very funny ways. Well, and, you know, parodies aside, his original work, which we haven't really highlighted on our podcast, he is a he, he's an incredible songwriter. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, and he... You know, as you said, he pays tribute to artists. I mean, whether it's Gordon Lightfoot or it's Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young or it's Devo, as you said, or or even it doesn't matter. I mean, he he basically has paid tribute to everybody, even Frank Zappa, which is actually one of his right. heroes yeah. that, that he's named many times. The fact that he can weave in and out of various genres, write songs in those genres, paying tribute to bands that are wildly wildly different that is a talent that I, how many rock musicians could just weave in and out of right. any number of genres you know and the podcast was also pointing out how he he chose songs at the time that were were popular of course but he had this uncanny ability to figure out the songs that he parodied for the most part not in every case would would last time uh, the uh, last the um, what am I trying to say here last the test of time is what right. I'm trying to say and and so you know he could have picked you know some of these singles that no one's ever heard of, but he picks these songs that like 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 a virgin and you know I want a new drug and of course uh, beat it that would be part of our zeitgeist forever. Right now, some would argue maybe they are. We still remember them because Weird Al did versions of them. But I think he just kind of really understood um, what was going to stand that test of time. Yeah, no, I agree. All right, here is my final song for side A. So I, I ask you a question, <laughs> audience. What do you do when you learn that your wife has cheated on you with several men, your best friend Andy among them? You go on the uh, Maury Povich show? Is that what you do? <laughs> <laughs> no, was it, who was it? Was it Maury? Was that the one? No, who was the one? Springer? Or yeah, Jerry Springer. Uh, maybe yeah. maybe both in the same vein there. Yeah, yeah. probably. Uh, Maury was a little more reserved. Well, the answer, if you live in Georgia is that you arm yourself with your papa's gun and you set out to kill your best friend, okay? That is the plot line of The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia by Vicki Lawrence. He was on his way home from Candletop been two weeks gone and he thought he'd stop at Webb's and have him a drink before he went home to her. Andy Wolo said hello and he said hi, what's doing? Whoa said sit down, I've got some bad news, it's gonna hurt. He said I'm your best friend and you know that's right, but your young bride ain't home tonight. Since you've been gone she's been seeing that Amos boy Seth. 
eyed man when he saw red And Andy said, boy, don't you lose your head Cause to tell you the truth, I've been with her myself That's a night that the lights went out in Georgia That's a night that they hung an innocent man Well, don't trust your soul and no backwood southern lawyer Released in 1973, the song hit number one um, on the Billboard charts. The song's protagonist, he does not get the chance to kill his best friend, though. When he gets to Andy's house, he, he finds that his friend is already dead. And then he does the stupidest thing that I think you can ever do, which is to fire a shot in the air to call or to wave down the, the police who are passing by. Police show up, arrest him for a murder he didn't commit. He is hurriedly found guilty and hanged before his sister, okay, there's your twist ending, before his sister can confess she committed the crime. And um, I think she also kills... She also killed his wife, yeah. The wife and dumps her body somewhere. Yeah, she says that's one body that will never be found, yeah. Um, this was the only hit for Lawrence, and as you said, she was a comedian. She was best known for her roles on The Carol Burnett Show and, of course, Mama's Family. Um, the song was written by Bobby Russell, who was Lawrence's husband at the time. Um, they divorced soon after it was released. Uh, Russell didn't think much of the song when he wrote it, and he couldn't find anyone to record it. So Lawrence, who liked it, recorded a demo, and producer Snuff Garrett decided she should do the song, and he recorded it with her. But I found this really interesting, and I can actually see this. It, it would have worked. The song was offered to share. Hmm, yeah, but Sonny thought that it would offend Cher's Southern fans and turned it down on her behalf. She she did not know until years later that she had been offered the song and that her husband at the time had done this. That's a total Sonny move. Yeah, and she was not happy. Of course not. It was a number one hit, right? Uh, Reba McIntyre for for the country fans that are out there. She did record a version in '91 that was a huge country hit as well. I, I just, I don't know what it is about this song. I just, I love this song. I love story songs. Yeah, no, and then country music's great for that. You know, right. like a Goodbye Earl, I mean, it's in the same vein. This one's a lot darker. Yeah, well, yes. And Goodbye Earl, which yeah. is over the top. But this one, yeah, this one's pretty dark. Yeah, but I I do. I've always loved the song. And, and well, and then, then, too, at the end, it almost becomes a... Um, a um, a comment on our judicial system, right? Because an innocent man is is hanged. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, again, and, and of course, the the narrator of the song, who is the sister, right? And yeah. she's the one that committed the crime. Obviously, knows he's an innocent man, and, and yeah, kind of rallies against the system for her brother having to pay for her crime. Well, and you know, for the longest time, I this is one. I mean, I've always listened, but I didn't listen closely enough because I always wondered. Why did the sister let him? Yeah, doesn't yeah. But but then I you know preparing for the episode, I really for the first time, I looked at the lyrics and, and read them through. I, I listened you know word for word. She's at, she's not there at the time, and the fact is that this case is pushed through the judicial system so fast uh, that basically the judge just judge and jury found him guilty before she was able to get back to town uh, okay. to, you know, um, yeah. So of course she'd have to also, she'd have to be hanged too. So well, yeah. as much as you want to protect your family member, especially if you were the culprit of, of the reason that he was being hanged, it would still be difficult to, it, it to volunteer to be hanged in his stead. Absolutely. Even if that would be the right thing to do. Yeah. Don't, don't trust your life on any backwoods Southern lawyer. Is this the lesson of the song? I suppose. 
What's your last song? All right, last one here. And boy, this is a classic. We had to include this one. It's Renegade by Styx from 1978 from Pieces of Eight. Oh, mama, I'm in fear for my life from the long arm of the law. Lawman is putting into my running and I'm so far from my home. Crying, you're so scared and all alone. Hangman is coming down from the gallows, and I don't have very This is Tommy Shaw, uh, Tommy Shaw's penned rocker, and in my opinion, one of Sticks' coolest songs. You know, Sticks, it, it kind of varies. You know, they, they have the respect of the rock community, but I, especially at the time, um, especially Dennis Young's stuff was sometimes seen as, you know, a little bit campy. Um, you know, come sail away. I love it, but I can see how some people would say it's a little bit campy, right? Oh yeah. Shaw actually had a little more of the edge. He was a little more of the serious, and I think that's why Sticks worked so well because they counterbalanced each other. Of course, now they tour separately and, and they're no longer together. I got to see the Tommy Shaw version of Sticks live, which was a lot of fun. But um, this this one has earned its spot on classic rock radio for all time, right? This is one you're going to hear. It's part of the canon. The track begins with a slow lament about the hangman approaching the gallows to execute this wanted man who's been caught and forced to pay for his crimes. And so it's this really, really slow intro, which is interesting. You know, a lot of rock songs just kind of get to it, and this one kind of eases into it. It gives us that kind of dark, foreboding feeling before we launch into the actual song. And in my mind, the song is absolute perfection. I can't find a fault in it. From its composition to its vocal harmonies, the biting guitar solo, it's just top-notch, even if maybe I do get sick once in a while from hearing it all the time. But I'm not to the point where I can't listen to it. Like, I think we mentioned the Eagles. I'm to the point where I'm not sure I can listen to for, for a long, long time. Uh, the song was a live staple for the band, usually closed out their shows. It reached number 16 on Billboard. I'm not sure how it didn't hit number one, but yeah, this this may be my favorite six song. Well, right up there with, with Come Sail Away. Yep, I would agree. All right. Well, that is all. That is it. Side A. Another week done with uh, some pretty good music. Yeah, hopefully we uh, we you know brought back some memories or introduced you to uh, to a few new tunes as well. Um, I'm, I wasn't as familiar with, with Superfly. I've, I've heard the song a few times, but I had an opportunity to really listen to it and dig into it, as well as the uh, Vicky Lawrence song. So very good. All right. Well, folks, next week will be Side B. Uh, as our audience grows, and I think it's growing because uh, listeners out there are giving us uh, reviews, which really helps with the algorithm. So please, if you have an opportunity on Apple iTunes or Spotify to uh, give us a good review if you're enjoying the show. We also have a Patreon account right now, and we are going to work on some different levels of that. But right now, we just kind of have a flat $10 
uh, a month. So if you're interested in kind of helping us offset some of these costs so we can continue to bring you this broadcast, feel free to go to our website, genxmixtape.com. There's a button for the Patreon, and you can sign up there. And uh, we will offer early release uh, of our episodes and uh, may have some other things here in the future, like stickers and T-shirts and a few other things that you can get. So right. we're kind of working on that. Um, I'd also like to get more of our listeners' presence in the episodes. I'm not sure how that's going to work, but I would love to give them some means to contribute. Well, I thought about this. Um, we can talk about it, obviously, after the show here. But uh, some some uh, website or some website, some uh, podcasts set up a voicemail line, and they allow their listeners to call in and, and give some feedback, and then they play those a few of those clips on their uh, episodes. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I've just been thinking, you know, what would our listeners put on their mixtapes? Yeah, you know, be really interesting to find out. Yeah. But yeah, please do uh, if you're able, and if you like us, yeah, I suppose you have to like us to to you know join the the Patreon. But, well, if you made it this far, you know, well, you'd that's probably true. Like us, that's, I would hope. I hope, unless you're hate yeah. listening to us, which I hope isn't the case, or tor- <laughs> or torturing somebody else. Yeah, but um, yeah, this is great. It's great hearing from from everybody out there on Twitter and uh, and receiving emails and on Facebook. Uh, I think we're up to twenty three thousand, almost twenty four thousand. Facebook followers, which is just amazing. So if you if you like those memes, um, we'll be posting them. And if you join our, our Gen X Mixtape Facebook group, which is a little more intimate, a few thousand of you, and uh, of course Alan posts his, his top five, and you can contribute that way. And I would like to see that group become a discussion for some of the episodes as well. I would, yeah, I would, that's that's kind of my dream. Yeah, we'll see. We shall see. All right. Well, that's all for this week. Hot funk, cool punk, even if it's old junk. Another mix of memories awaits next week. But for now. Press pause, lift the needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side.